Den Talks podcast is powered by denanywhere.com. You guys go to denanywhere.com now, no matter where you live in the world, and you can take our classes virtually and live. You get a limited access to our classes with over 150 a month to choose from. Plus, most of them are archived. So if you can't make the exact time, you can catch them later. We still also have our workshops and our certifications now all accessible to you no matter where you are. Go to denanywhere.com. Hello, welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal. I am your host and the founder of Den Meditation. I have Terry Cole on today. I love this woman. She is such a badass, very East Coast. So I have that in common with her and very bonded. Um, she's an incredible therapist. And what I talk about today, which we all could use, is the idea of boundaries. She's written a book called Boundary Boss and basically how to become the boss of yourself and create your own boundaries. Why I love this conversation, it's not as simple as it may seem off the bat. It goes to the point that boundaries basically are a reflection of every programming and point of view you have of yourself. So all of this stuff that we talk about on this podcast, all of these things I know you're searching for, kind of how to unravel yourself a little bit to really get to know the deeper sides of you, how to kind of lose that impetus of reaction that you might always have or that programming that kind of got instilled when you were a child. So much of this is connected to boundaries. You find that the way you interact with other people and the world is exactly how you were kind of raised or the restrictions within yourself. So my point being, which is amazing about this conversation and her, is you really start to get to know yourself by understanding the boundaries and then shifting the world around you. So who knew that just through boundaries was the way you can actually shift. So I hope you are affected by this conversation as I was. I hope you love it. She is really great. Um, let us know. Go to our Facebook page, Den Talks Podcast, drop a line. Um, also leave a review. It's always so helpful. Please, please, please leave a review. We love that. And enjoy the episode. Well, I'm so glad we get to talk and I really loved your book. I mean, it's it was really... First of all, it's a pretty easy read and a great, and I mean that in a great way. Like it's digestible. Awesome. Yeah. Like super digestible. Um, and about the best topic ever that I feel like everyone always talks about, but no one ever really knows what to do. So like we throw it out. It's like boundaries, boundaries. Everyone just kind yep. of always says, I got to be better with my boundaries. Or they put them back, but nobody ever knows how to actually set one, what it means, how yep. not to react to one. So <laughs> I mean, it's true. So I actually thought your book was like so comprehensive that way, which I found so impressive. Oh, um, thanks. Yeah. What is it because you felt like that was something you were really struggling with your life? Is that how you kind of ended up concentrating on it? Like that became a thing for you? Yeah. I mean, I was a boundary disaster. So that was one. <laughs> and then I was in the trenches with my clients for almost 25 years. Right. So, and I could just see every high functioning woman who was similar to me, right? You kind of attract who you are therapeutically, um, would come in and all of their pain points were back to not knowing how to set a limit, um, tell the truth about how they feel. They don't even know how to prioritize their own preference. Like they feel like it's cool to be like, I'm easy. You're like, why, why is having no fucking preference? Like preferable. I don't get it. Like it's not, <laughs> people don't know you. Right. So I could see, wow, all these roads of pain Basically, we're leading to the same lack of knowledge about being fluent 
in the art of boundaries. And it's not just, anyway, whatever, I could go on. I don't want to. Oh, well, go on. That's what we're here for. So keep going. <laughs> no, keep okay, going. Good. It's let's, really interesting. Yeah. Well, part of the thing is that as women, if you're raised a- as a woman, right, and you're older than mm, 28, maybe, how were you raised? Like we were, not only were we not taught what boundaries were and how to set them, and why they matter, we were literally raised and praised for being self-abandoning codependent. Like the nicer you were, she'd give you the sweater off her back. She had no problem, easy breezy, so nice. Like niceness was this crazy virtue, like above all other things. Like is niceness even a mother effing virtue? I don't even think it is, but that's how we were raised to be like, make sure people think you're nice. Don't be rejected. Don't be a drama queen. Don't be hysterical. Don't be a bitch. Like <laughs> all of those things colluded and conspired so that we would literally not only not know how to assert ourselves, to um, erect and enforce healthy boundaries, we actually had an unconscious negative bias against doing it because of all the myths that are out there of like, and if you do that, then you're a ball buster. Then you're then you're a bitch. Then yeah. you are right. And yeah, so- yeah. Keep, you know, it's true because it's like I was. It was one of the things when I was reading. It, I was like, wow. It's like yes, you're supposed to go. You know, you have so much about going into your past, which I love, which we'll get into. But it was so true. I'm like, as a woman, you're just automatically, no matter what, you are preconditioned to not know how to set boundaries because I think you're right. It was almost like if you set boundaries, that was considered negative. Because then you weren't right. willing to like give, you weren't willing to do what you need to do. It was like all on you to make everyone else happy. Right. And let's let's be clear when we're talking about setting boundaries, because I think that there's still so much confusion. The way that I frame it, we're really talking about sharing your preferences, desires, limits, and deal breakers with the people in your life on a regular basis. So Really, if you didn't have a problem with someone, right, there, there's not a problem. It, the boundaries come in when we need to set a limit, when we need to tell someone no. How often, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard this with, from my clients over the last two and a half decades of people, women in particular, saying yes when they want to say no, overcommitting, overgiving, overfunctioning, overdoing, overfeeling. Right. And this is because partly look at these gender roles where who who are women? Oh, we're the we're the connectors, right? We're the we're the assuagers, the mm-hmm. we are the people who we're the bridgers in families and communities. And all of that means being self-sacrificing. It means doing all the friggin' emotional labor and being grateful for it, right? Like the emotional labor, like who who keeps the ship of life running? Who? Yeah, we Still, do. It is women. I know. I have this conversation with my husband on the daily where I try and explain to him the difference of doing and also being the person who carries the mental load. I'm like, keeping the ships running, like, yes, executing stuff is half of it, which I do most of it anyway. I go, but the mental load of that is a lot. It's a lot. And you're right. It's like this weird expectation that just kind of happens. But it's from both sides. So part of the problem too, is that I remember years ago, I I was complaining to my mother about a boyfriend who I was living with. 
And I was like, he doesn't know how to vacuum and he doesn't know how to brown garlic or whatever the things I was complaining brown about. Brown garlic. <laughs> it's always burning the garlic. <laughs> and she was like, you know, Tara, if you need everything done your way, she's like, when I was, you know, your, your father didn't help do anything, P.S. So, and, you know, if, you, if you're with someone who's willing to help, exactly, if you need it done your way, eventually... And you keep criticizing or or not you're gonna you know, be doing it yourself. That. That's exactly what she said. Yes, she said you right. will end up like me, doing it all, and it'll be done your way. But you'll be doing it, and you'll be doing it alone. So there's there's twofold of the emotional labor stuff where the stuff that I you know have my husband do in in my relationship because we don't really have there, there's no real like traditional thing because he does way more of the more home stuff than I do, but not home stuff, you know what I mean? Like cooking oh, yeah, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. It's like I have to either fully let it go and go however he's doing it. Mm-hmm. He's doing it. That was a huge lesson for me. Right? Because if not, you can't have it both ways. So and if he says to me, you know, the there's a more efficient way to load the dishwasher. I think he said that once in the beginning. And I was like, here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You can load the dishwasher every time and all the time, and I'll do other things. Like, I'm not saying he can't tell me anything, but I'm saying if I'm not going to load the dishwasher if someone's going to be behind me and reloading the dirty dishes because somehow I could have fit like two more forks, you know? Right. And if it matters to him, I'm not, I'm not even saying it like I was mad. I'm not mad because there's a million things I do that he doesn't do, and that's okay. But if you need it done a certain way, then P.S., you are the person who will be doing it. And we have an agreement like that. That's so true. It's so interesting. It is. But it is true. It comes, especially for women. I feel like women have a lot more to unpack. Everyone has a lot to unpack as far as boundaries. But I feel like women have a whole extra layer that they're just handed that they also have to unpack. As Because like you said, I agree with you. It's, you know what is the value in it? What does it really matter? And it's really up to you to set those boundaries to know that you don't have to be one carrying the whole mental load or blah, blah, blah. But it is so ingrained of like purpose and doing and good and bad and point. And it's like, that takes, it's a lot of like of unpacking. It is. But part of what I, the way that I lay it out in the book is that awareness is this first pillar, right? I've got these five pillars of transformation. So awareness of like, we do tons of inventories in the book. I I have these things called back to you. So the reader, as you know, because you read it, you know, so that the reader gets to go, oh, this is back to me. Okay, good. I'm talking about my life. So so where do I need to set a limit? Like, what is the problem? Because your awareness is the first step to change, right? Because we deny things, there's a lot of things we repress. And so then we move into the second pillar, which is self-knowledge. And then we move into the third pillar, which is self-acceptance. But with self-knowledge, it really requires us to, as I say, go into the basement of your mind, which is your unconscious mind, open up those boxes that you haven't looked in in 35 years or 10 or 15 or ever and go, okay, what actually happened? Let me identify this. What is, so the first thing we really do is identify your unique boundary blueprint. Because, you know, Tal, you relate to boundaries super specifically. Like I relate to boundaries super specifically. And as women, we may have these sort of shared experiences and we do. But your home, your family of origin, 
what the repetition compulsion within your family system, as Freud would say, that is what came together with your culture, with your society, with your friends. Those things are what made your unique boundary blueprint, meaning the paradigm in your unconscious mind saying, this is the way life is when it comes to relating to my preferences, my desires, my limits, and my deal breakers. This is the way it is. This is just the way life is. When you go down there and you're able to reveal what's sort of in your blueprint, because keep in mind, the blueprints are like an architectural blueprint for a house that someone else designed potentially decades, I don't know, centuries ago, because if they don't get challenged or looked at, it we literally think it's the way the world is as opposed to, oh, this is just the way it was for my family of origin or my folks or my culture or my country. But just because it was like that for them, it doesn't have to be like that for me. Like I could actually choose something different. And so that is a very revelatory part of this process where you get to go, oh yeah, no, I don't like that. You know, the, the imbalance in power in a relationship is something that I saw with my parents before they got divorced when I was 13. And I was super clear, like, yeah, no, I, mm -mm." my father had all the power because he made all the money. And I was like, I'm definitely making my own friggin' money because I don't want to be with anyone who has power over me because there's an inequity in how much money we make. And of course my mother was like home with four little kids and didn't make any money. So and not that he lauded it over her head, but she knew if he got abducted by aliens, she'd be screwed. You know what I mean? Yeah, you say that in the book, which I found really interesting. You're like, it was the silent boundary that was actually the most dangerous because it was very clear that he was the breadwinner and she was the one who ran the home. And it was never spoken, but that was very clear that those were the roles. And like, it was kind of like you weren't allowed to step out of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and all of us had those um, modeled behaviors in our lives. And most of us never think about them. So part of the beginning of the book and the process of becoming a boundary boss is really about going, oh, so what are the things that are in my unconscious mind, in my basement, that I think is the way the world is? Maybe not. Maybe it's not the way the world is. Maybe it's just the way it was for me. And once we learn what that is, and the best news in this whole entire process is that you shouldn't already know this because no one friggin' teaches you, <laughs> but you can learn. And it's a little bit like expecting to be able to be fluent in like Russian or Mandarin with no instruction. You're like, if I just pray hard enough, maybe I'm going to wake up fluent tomorrow. <laughs> and obviously we know you're not. This is the same thing, but it is absolutely teachable and learnable. So there's hope that no matter where you are on your path, anyone listening, like if you're like, oh my God, I'm a boundary disaster. You know what? You're not. You just haven't learned yet. So you're doing what came naturally to you. And before you can even make any changes, we have to look at what are the myths. And I'll ask you, Talik, what are your thoughts when you think about someone who's, you know, a boundary master? Like, what is the thought? Well, it's interesting because sometimes I feel like if someone feels like they have super strict boundaries, it almost feels cold, which again, I think goes back to 
kind of the, as a woman, like what you and I started the conversation with, I think if I'd unpack that, I would go back all the way to there of, yes, because that means that person's not willing to just take on everybody else's shit, which now mm-hmm. as an adult, I'm like, good for you. But, you know, I'd have to like get through that initial reaction which like the good news is I do the work so I could feel that reaction and I'd be able to pinpoint it as it's happening. So I wouldn't let that reaction take over, but I could see how, if I wasn't doing the work that would take over and would cause a lot of friction actually of probably me not understanding or disrespecting somebody else for their own boundaries. Right. But it's interesting. You do the work, you're on this path and you, and you're aware enough to say, Hmm, it would probably be kind of a negative connotation a little bit. Like I wouldn't feel like it was aspirational. (laughs) And here's the, the, you know, the biggest myths, right. That boundaries are like creates, create blocks in relationships, right. They're about rejecting people. They're about confrontation. They're about, you know, always getting your way and like being mean about it. Right. If I'm, if I'm, if I have healthy boundaries, my clients would be like, and, you know, of course, they wouldn't straight up say this, but they'd be like, no, it feels like me, though. Like, I don't want them to think I'm not nice. So if I say no. A thousand percent. I feel like this would have been my issue. Right? If I say no, mm-hmm. then they're not going to like me. They're going to be mad at me. And I want to be nice. And I'm like, OK, but let's let's really look at this like from a a factual point of view. Is it nice to say yes when you really want to say no? No, it's just straight up dishonest. So the thing is, people don't realize that there is a, you can always be truthful with kindness mm-hmm. and ease, with love when appropriate, not always appropriate, but when it is. So it's the same thing with any kind of boundaries and setting limits, right? It can always be done with kindness, but it is not kind to let someone think that you want to do something when you don't want to. And it's, it screws both of you because it's not just tricking them by making them think you like something that you don't. What you're doing is you're blocking the intimacy in your relationship Hmm. because how can anyone ever know us if we don't allow them, right? How can, how can anyone ever love us if we don't allow them to know us? And when we're telling these white lies and being dishonest and smoothing something over, but we're really, the truth is, we're not being honest. And again, let me just say quick, Tal, when I say being honest, I don't mean, you know, the people who use honesty as like a big stick to to beat you in the face with, right? Okay. That's not the kind of honesty that I'm talking about, because those are the people who are like, you can always trust me. I'll always be honest honest with you. Like if I don't like the color you painted your house or your hair looks bad. No, those are just friends who have a little sadistic streak and kind of want to make you feel like shit about yourself. So forget about them. That's, we're not, we're not talking about that kind of honesty. We're really talking about how to deepen intimacy in our relationships. We have to be able to be truthful about how we feel. And so much of the time we're worried, we're dialed into I'm afraid they're going to feel this way. How many times have I said in my life, I don't want them to feel. Yeah, I don't want them to feel that. Right, I don't want them to feel that. That's it. And then, you know, having a therapy and the therapist is like, okay, but how they feel is not for you to want or not want. Like, does someone, do you owe someone 
your honesty if you want to have a, a healthy relationship. And I say, yes, and I don't believe in this. You know, some people feel like there's like extreme honesty is good. I'm like, oh, no, you don't have to tell someone every thought in your mind or every time you don't like what they have on, even if you're married to them, like just relax right. with all the judgment. You know, it's not, it's not necessary. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about your side of the street, being honest about your side of the street. What do you really want to do? What are your true feelings about something? If something hurt your feelings, saying something about it, unless you know that your person is compromised, right? They're not, they're not feeling good and they snapped at you. I do not handle that. We make decisions about boundaries, right? We don't need to freak out unless they're snapping at you all day, every day, then hi, that's a problem. Right. But you know what I mean? Being in a long-term relationship, like... We make yes. allowances. You, you ha it's funny, though. It's interesting, everything you're saying, because I was married previously, very short. And my biggest issue, and I, I talk about this, what I learned the most was I was so afraid of communicating, which is funny because usually I'm a pretty good communicator. But clearly, when it came to the deep intimacy, I was not. And I was so always afraid of hurting his feelings that, I mean, I just created a mess and I ended up. And it's, so it's the advice I give everyone all the time too, where, where I ended up hurting him so much more because oh, yeah. by the time we got to the point where everything had to come out, it was like, I, I created a mess versus if I could have just been honest pre-wedding or at whatever it was, and even honest with myself, then it would have been much better. And I learned so much through that breakup, um, as most people do through divorce, if you're willing to do it. Oh my mm -hmm. God. And I would say it was the best hardest time, but the best because I came out of it with fierce honesty. And like you said, not fierce honesty, just to be an asshole, but <laughs> we're so much better at, you know, being able to express like, I am not happy now, you know, this is not working, or I really would like to, it just, and knowing, because I knew in my core, the opposite of not doing that would hurt someone so badly. And yes. the thought of ever doing that again, just makes my whole body sad, like when I even think about it. So oh, yeah. it's I had to learn the hard way, as we often do. A lot of people, you know, you're get you're given the thing, everything has to explode in for you to in order to learn the lesson. So my mine, mm -hmm. mine did. Um, but it is so true. And it's funny, I think about it, I'm like, wow, it's true. If I really look in hindsight from that moment in my life, I probably created started creating better boundaries in a healthier way without even realizing it after that because like you said those lessons are trickle effects in the rest yeah. of your life right but a lot of times when you have um, a really painful rupture and it's happened with us globally with the pandemic it's like there's all of this opportunity that doesn't normally exist when we are like business as usual we have these defense mechanisms psychologically that are really like robust they're strong yes. they keep us going and doing our thing when everything goes to shit it's like this possibility opens up because you could change anything you can you can do so much so whenever i would deal with the client and trauma i would always explain like listen it's like the window is open right now let's just stick your foot through and together we'll we'll topple over to the other side by doing a whole bunch of work in a short period of time because the openness like we create these paradigms in our minds of like this is how it is mm -hmm. so right your reality was 
I'm married. We're this. This is our life. These are our friends. These are my in-laws. These are the things. When all of that explodes or implodes, there's a moment to go, okay. What do I want it to how be? How do I want it to be? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, how there's do I freedom. want my life? Yeah. It's funny. I said that I was teaching about that in my class when the pandemic first started. And I said, like, look, I say this with all respect of anyone who's lost their jobs or is suffering right now or, God forbid, losing family members. I was like, but we're all we are being all handed a little bit of freedom because what the norms are, just exactly what you said, have been taken away from us. And this was last March. I mean, it was a year ago. I remember saying this. We're like, these norms are all being taken away. And if you're willing to not sit in the fear of them being taken away and instead sit in the possibility of not having to conform to these constraints that we're so used to living within, you're going to find a whole set of of things appearing before you that you never even would have been able to think about before because your just brain wasn't even able to compute it. I agree. It's, it is the beauty that's always part of the darkness. It is. And it also is this whole, what you said, it's like this, you know, what, what is life is like, we're in, we're in higher learning school. Mm -hmm if we so choose. And so every situation that blows, I like to say every craps do, there is like gems of wisdom in there, but you gotta be willing to get your hands dirty and go in and say, okay, so what about this is mine? When did I see red flags that I ignored? What What is my 50% of what I experienced with this other human being? And in the beginning, a lot of times we either feel so guilty because we broke up a relationship or we're so angry because someone broke up with us that we just either want to be like, I'm a piece of crap because I did the breaking up or they're a piece of crap. When we get past the, the, that, the, that part, there is such a beautiful opportunity, as you said, to go, what is in this for me? What can I learn about myself, you know? Oh yeah. I was very determined. I remember I put myself immediately. (laughs) I was in, we, he and I were in couples therapy. I was in therapy twice a week. I was like, and I remember going and being like, I need to work. Like there's stuff I need to work on. Like it was so clear to me. And, but I'm so glad I did it. Cause like you said, it really is an amazing time. And I do feel very confident, at least not that you're not constantly learning, but I do feel very Mm -hmm. confident that I mind that part of my life to really grow, if that makes sense. Um, oh, it does. And it yeah. is an opportunity, you know, and I'm sure that's why you teach what you teach, you know? Yeah, probably. But I also want to talk about what you kind of, you dipped into a little bit in the beginning when you were talking about a lot of the clients you attract. So clearly you were like this a little bit too. And I, I, re- I responded to it also is when you talk about these high functioning codependents and then you link it to um, perfectionism which I found fascinating too. Like first I was like, oh yes, of course, this high functioning codependent, like, you know, CEOs, people who are super successful financially, what they do. So I want to dive into that a little bit, but I really found it interesting how it was also that other level of just how perfectionism comes in there too. And those are often intertwined, which was really interesting because I never thought they about are. It that the way. thing with, let's talk about codependency for a second, because, you know, the nature of codependency itself, like many of us have this idea, like kind of Melody Beatty, codependent no more. Um, codependency means you're an enabler for an alcoholic, or it means that you are with a narcissist, or it means that you are with someone who has a gambling addiction, right? So there's was this old school vibe to codependency. And so whenever I would mention, I would see the signs, 
obviously. I know what they are, my clients. And I would bring up, say, hey, what do you think about, you know? And they'd be like, codependent? Are you crazy? Everyone's dependent on me. Hello. I do everything. Everyone comes to me for the answers. I am the go-to person. What are you talking about? And I'm like, okay, well, what if we did it this way? Because I actually did observe in the last over two decades, this a particular flavor of codependency <laughs> in my clients. Because And it was hard to put a finger on because it's not someone, not all of them had addict relationships or any of those things. But I started to see the threads and I was like, okay, are you overly invested in the feeling states, the decisions, the outcomes of the people that you love? And are you, when I say overly invested, I mean invested to the point where it is detrimental to your own life, bandwidth, mental, physical health? And the answer was, oh my God, yes. So when I started describing what high-functioning codependency was, they were like, oh yeah, duh, obviously, that's definitely <laughs> me. And so there is a slight, it is my own, I just made up my own thing because it wasn't fitting my, my actual population. But the feeling is the same because there is this overgiving, overdoing, overinvestment, overfeeling, but with high-functioning codependency, my clients and the women in my courses were so high functioning that they could do it all. It's kind of like Ginger Rogers, right? She was doing everything Fred Astaire was doing, except she was doing it backwards and in heels. It's like they were doing it and almost making it continue to look easy. Like failure yes. wasn't an option. And there's the perfection piece. Yes. That's why I found this so fascinating. So Clearly I can relate. <laughs> I, I knew it. I just knew it. But when some, well, once the person, once you're able to go, wow, I've never looked at codependency because I had these old ideas about it. What she's saying now makes me go, hey, man, that's me. Because you are high functioning, because you are getting all those things done, even though you're going to your meeting, your friend who has a broken heart, you're also, you know, sending her quotes from women who love too much. Do you know what I mean? Like you're, you're doing it. You're like, and I did a Google thing and I found this thing. And I have a friend who knows a person who does a thing. Like we can't stop. We can't stop connecting people. We can't stop fixing other it, people's problems. It's funny. And I want you to continue because I love this area, but it it is interesting because it does connect to like the Malcolm Gladwell whole philosophy of like, it feels like a codependent is also a connector. And so it's so interesting that it's like two very, again, it's how you look at it. You could be like, well, Malcolm Gladwell would say I'm a connector. So therefore, <laughs> you know, like, you know what I mean? It's, it's what I think gets in the way of this high functioning version. It's too easy to dismiss it as you're just doing great stuff for everyone. Yeah. And here's the thing. If you were just doing great stuff for everyone, it would not be at the expense of you. So you probably are a connector. So am I. And when I'm out of balance and when my boundaries are out of balance, I'm still overgiving. I'm still overly concerned about the outcomes. I say I shouldn't do it. And then I'm still like sending that one last email to my friend, like, but if you do want me to hook you up, I will. Then I'm like, stop it. Oh my God, <laughs> stop doing that. So that's how you can actually tell if you are what Malcolm Gladwell would say, like just a, you know, a kick-ass connector, or if the high functioning codependency is in some way a detriment 
to your the quality of your internal experience and the quality of your relationships. Because ultimately, if we overgive for too long, if we fix, even, even if you're great at it, like I'm a great problem solver, so I love to dive in. Like I want to just be like, this is exactly what you should do. Now, I've been a therapist for long enough and I've had, you know, 35 years of therapy myself. Right. So I realized you can don't see do the that. answer in two seconds too. Right. Right. It'd be so much faster if we just did this. If you can do those things, not at the expense of yourself, because also understand, because here's the painful thing about being the ultimate fixer and whatever. I remember talking to one of my, my therapists about um, someone in my family was really struggling and always struggling. And I was always trying to save her from herself and her addictions and her abusive boyfriends. And well. And I remember just telling my therapist this terrible story of this person who I love so much, like living in the woods without running water with this piece of shit who's like a crack addict and beats her. You know what I mean? Literally, that's the story. Not, not kidding. Sorry, and she funny, was it's just the way you deliver. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, right. But I'm not, here's the thing though. I want you to understand, I'm literally not exaggerating. Like, that's the scenario. So yes, I felt a sense of urgency, but like I did always when she was in pain or in trouble. And my therapist, Ruth, was like, I was like, listen, this is like, I got to do something. Like, this is terrible. This is, I don't even know. I don't get it. And Ruth was like, Terry, let me ask you something. What makes you think you know what Jenna's journey is in this life? I was like, well, I know, Ruth, I think we could both agree that it's not living without running water with a crackhead or beezer. I don't know. Can we? And she was like, actually, no, I, I can't agree that that's not her lesson, that that's not her journey. I can't because I'm not God. I don't know. And you're not either. But what you're really doing, Tara, is that her dumpster fire of a life is causing you a shit ton of anxiety so what you really want is your pain to stop because you've done years of therapy, stop drinking when you were 21. Like you've worked hard to have your internal peace. And this messy life of this person you love is really messing with that internal peace. I was like, wait a minute, what? What are you saying? So A, here's my takeaway. So I actually don't have to do that. She's like, no, not only do you not have to, but you actually can't. Like, right. it doesn't work. And you are most likely, you are centering yourself in the middle of this experience that she's having and that she's created, co-created with this other person. And you're literally getting in the way of whatever pain she needs to feel to go to the next level, to come up with her own solution. Right, you can save her again. You've done it before, and until she learns what she needs to learn, she's got to find herself back there. Right. So wow, that that really that really like wow. you know it's funny that to me was a huge eye opener too in life. That moment of, and it helped me because I was very much one of those people. I mean, same thing. Friends would come to me. You have all the answers. You it's and it's easier for you, so it doesn't feel like it's a big deal and, you know, always being able to quote unquote, help people. And I remember too, it was that, that awareness of, yeah, I don't know what this might be exactly what they need to do. And they might repeat this 50 more times in their life. And they may never go in my perceived mind grow from this experience, but this might be exactly where they need to be. And that 
shifted my relationship with people in a big way. And it's interesting. And, and it's funny, you find some people on the other end fall away because they're looking for that savior too. So it's like boundaries on both sides. Um, and then in some instances, the relationship gets stronger because you're giving them the space to just be and do. Um, I have a friend too, it's so funny, who same thing was always a little bit of like always in the dumpster fire relationships and I'm just ugly and bad. And I would, it's funny because I realized I must've put up more boundaries than I realized because other people have told me a lot of stories about like money, which I never had that experience with her. Cause I don't think I ever went, she knew not to go there with me, but I always did the emotional giving, like we give, make sure she could find somewhere to live, that she was always okay. And it's funny because she is one of those friends now that I just say this all the time. Like if I can, every once in a while, I'll think about her and I'll really look for her because I'm like, she might be my friend that we one day get a phone call is just found on the side of the road. It's like that type mm -hmm. of friends. And I've just had to come to terms with like, obviously I hope that's not the ending, but th this is clearly her struggle of life and she just has to go through it. But it's hard. It is so hard sometimes when you can watch someone in what you perceive as suffering. Right. But let, let's look at language, though, because here's the thing. Please. These are concepts like what we're talking about right now. Like we just identified some really great concepts like stop being a high functioning codependent, codependent, <laughs> stop telling your friends what to do all the time. And when people come to you, don't I mean, I always say don't give unasked for advice or criticism. I also say slow your roll when people come to you and are asking for your advice and that rather than immediately give it, my first thing I always say is, all right, well, tell me where you're at. What do you think you should do? What does your gut say? That's such a smart piece of advice. All right, let them. Why? I don't know. I wanted to see what you think. Okay, well, I, I will tell you, but I actually, let, let's spend a minute. If you did know, what would your gut be? Because here's the thing. You'll have codependency, like you said, coming, you know, people needing to be saved and you having sort of been, if you've been this way in your life, like uh, the one people come to for answers. But it's not just doing them a disservice. It puts you in a higher position than them, right? We're supposed we're supposed to be friends. So why do I think I, I literally know what they should be doing in life? Like, I don't. It's a perfect way to avoid our own lives. Because, you know, it takes a lot of bandwidth to be saving everyone else, right? We're like, well, I would have done that, but I was busy helping Betty with her new whatever. <laughs> yeah, right? So, so your, own, your own shit goes by the wayside a lot of times. And we have to look at what do we get out of being that? What is the secondary gain of being the person that everyone comes to? And yeah. I talk about that. I love how you brought that up in the book, the secondary gain. I thought that was also, again, this is what this book does so well is it's a concept we all talk about all the time, but you dig into it in a way that you're like, oh my God, yes. <laughs> so smart. So keep going on the secondary gain. Well, with secondary gain, it's basically a tool I came up with after, you know, just because, you know, you do it enough times in sessions and you're like, this needs to be something that I can reference quickly for people so they can use it themselves. Because as a therapist, you don't want people addicted to you, right? Your job is to right. teach them so they can do it on their own. So anyway, the secondary gain, it's basically, I also call it how to get unstuck. So you can use this in any area 
of your life. Any repeated unhealthy behaviors within yourself, if you keep saying like, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the gym and work, I mean, or I'm going to go in my backyard and work out um, or whatever, but then you don't do it. And then you feel bad. Uh, you're going to date, but you're not going to date until you lose 10 pounds, as many of my clients would say. I'm like, you should date right now. You're great the way you are. Whatever the self-sabotaging drinking, I'm going to I'm gonna not stop drinking during the week. And then like on Tuesday, you're like starting next week and <laughs> you have those two big glasses of wine. There's lots of self-sabotaging behaviors. And then there are like unhealthy interactions, relationships, and behaviors where you can use these questions. So secondary gain basically is a concept where it's, we find ourselves in circumstances that if we were like, so what are you getting out of this? You wouldn't be able to come up with anything because you would be like, nothing. I really want to be in a relationship. And, I, and it's just, I'm, 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 you know, it's not working. I don't know why or whatever. So it's not primary gain. It's secondary gain because it's the hidden gain we get by staying stuck. So how you can figure this out is you ask yourself, what do I get to not face, not feel, and not experience by staying stuck where I am. Right? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Who am I if I am not, let's say, over drinking or, or soothing my feelings with booze or overweight or, or whatever the thing is, underemployed, undervalued financially? Who am I if I'm not that? So there's a couple of questions, but the, the one that you need that will reveal it is, what do I get to not feel, not face, or not experience by staying stuck here. So for example, I had a client who kept saying she was gonna go on dating apps when she lost the 10 pounds. No matter what I said about it, she didn't need to lose it and I think she should have just done it. She was like, no, no, that's I wanna do that. But then she didn't lose the 10 pounds and she kept not losing the 10 pounds. So when we go to the secondary gain, okay, so what do you get to not face, not feel, not experience by not losing the weight that you say you have to lose before you can date? Oh, I get to not be rejected. I get to not be vulnerable because I continue to block myself from actually dating. So that is the secondary gain of eating the Ben and Jerry's or whatever it is. And this is a construct that she made for herself, right? The 10 pounds was the thing blocking her from dating. And then she didn't lose the 10 pounds. You're like, okay, clearly there's a part of you that doesn't, is afraid to date or you wouldn't have set it up that way. So back to secondary gain, that's just a tool and we can put it in the show notes, just, just the questions. It's, um, it's so smart because it's true. I mean, I'm quiet just because in my head, I'm like ruminating. I'm literally like thinking about all my own self-sabotage and I'm a pretty proactive person but, and I still have it. Um, and it is true. It's it's very illuminating when you start really taking the time to think about it because, yeah, and it's funny because you hit on one thing in there where you said, like, who am I without it? And I was like, wow, the identity thing, we all, I don't think most of us realize, even if the identity is one we're not proud of, that mm -hmm. the idea of 
not having it might be scarier because you don't even know what that looks like yet. Right. Who am I without overgiving took years for, for me to, to literally to deconstruct that part of my personality and my, my identification from the family system I grew up in, even though I was the youngest, but I was the designated oldest. So, I mean, that trip was so loaded to just answer that one question. Like, what is my worth if I'm not adding value all the time how did to you, the lives of others? How long do you feel like it took you until there was that moment? Like, you know what I mean? I feel like we all have that moment where you finally like get to a place and you're like, oh, it makes sense. Like, when do you feel like? Well, I think I was leading up to it in therapy. You know, I stopped drinking young and I started therapy when I was 19, stopped drinking when I was 21. So I had a really long time to get really tired. And I had a really long time being sober, like being wide awake in my life, which is yeah. different than spending another decade, which is, you know, if I hadn't had this particular therapist when I was in college, I'm sure I would have spent it, you know. Your therapist made you get sober, right? Well, my ther yes, I, I was seeing a therapist. 21 when and I sober was, is hard. Yeah. <laughs> I was still in college. Get, right. It's a hard time to be like, I'm going to get sober now. It's hard. Well, I you know, my, my thinking about it, she did. She said, hey, what you're describing is alcoholic behavior. And I was like, wait, what? Who? Me? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, well, then everyone in my life is an alcoholic. And she's like, well, what's interesting is I don't really care because I'm not treating everyone in your life. I'm just treating you. So if you want to continue working with me, um, you will need to go to a 12-step program. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. And yet she was so right, of course. And I was so relieved. And she probably spared me 10 years of bullshit that I could have lived without, you know? I mean, think about that. That, but the fact that you did it is huge, really. Because that's, again, especially if you weren't at a crisis point in your life, so you are just in college having fun, that's a hard thing to take seriously. The fact that you took that seriously and did it when you could have easily written it off for a million different reasons and waited, like you said, 10 years till it became an actual problem in your face that you just had to confront or it confronted you. <laughs> it's unbelievable, actually. I mean, it's, that's like, I get chills because I feel like that's when you realize like you were given this opportunity in order to go here and you took it, which is huge. You know, thank you for saying that, Tal, but that's exactly what it was like. I remember she made me, she was like, you have to at least go to one AA meeting. And I was like, okay. So I <laughs> you know, went to like a church in Syas in New York. And I was like, I want to sit by the door just in case this is like a cult. Like, I didn't know anything about recovery yeah. stuff, you know? I mean, it was 1980, friggin' six or whatever. And I remember after I left, when I was in there, when I was in that meeting, I was sitting by the door and it was, you know, you guys, this is the 80s. So you can imagine that my hair was huge. My nails were crazy long, tons of makeup. I, everyone was kind of smoking inside. So I was, you know, smoking my parliament 100s. So I'm sitting by the door and, and this woman comes over to me and she's like, oh, you know, what do you, what do you, you're new. I was like, yeah, hi. And I didn't know what the protocol was or anything. And she said, um, oh, well, welcome. I'm so-and-so. And she's like, what, what brought you here? And I guess that's a question people ask. And I said, well, actually my therapist threatened to break up with me if I didn't come to <laughs> one meeting. <laughs> and she was like, oh, okay. And then I said, just to be polite, because I didn't know, I said, what brought you here? And she was like, 
I killed a six-year-old boy in a drunk driving accident. Mm. And I was like, oh my God. And from that moment, I always see her in my mind as an angel mm-hmm. who intervened in my life at the exact moment I needed because I can feel it right now. I could start crying, but the gratitude that that wasn't my story. And, you know, it was the eighties people I drove drunk plenty because everyone did. I'm not saying it's okay. Thank God I didn't hurt anyone, but Uber did not exist. (laughs) It did not. I always say it's a very different drinking experience. I remember leaving that meeting and I, I went into my car and uh, Whitney Houston's greatest love of all, literally, I turned on the radio and I was bawling my, crying hysterically from her story. Like I contained it in the meeting, but I got in the car like, oh my God, I'm greatest love of all. I'm crying, bawling my face off. And I remember just driving back to campus and I just made this pact with God, the divine, the powers that be, the universe, whoever, Buddha, Elvis, and just said like, I get it. Like, I see this opportunity that you literally just handed to me on a silver platter, and I'm not going to blow it. Like, I'm done. I got it. It's so big, though. Like, I just keep thinking of a 21-year-old who gets that. That's just big. Most people don't have that yet, that vision yet. Right. I did start drinking when I was 12, though, so I did have kind of a long time of drinking. <laughs> so maybe your therapist was right. Um, are you still with that therapist? Is, is No, that was a therapist that I saw. She was literally, she was getting her master's. She was like a student therapist, but she had been a prima ballerina in the New York Ballet. Like, so interesting. I saw her after I graduated college. I went from New York City on a friggin' train all the way out to Huntington, Long Island, Every Monday night for like years, I walked a mile to her house. Now, this sounds like I'm somebody's grandfather where I was like, I walked in bare feet in the snow, (laughs) but but I did. I literally did. And I would get back to the city every Monday night at about midnight. Wow. But I mean, she sounds like she was amazing. Amazing. Because that was bold. That was such a bold. Now that I've been a therapist for so long, I realized what a bold intervention that was. She was literally like, bitch, I'm breaking up with you. If you don't get help, that's how serious it is. I was like, oh my God, can she even break up with me? Is that even allowed? You know, (laughs) apparently it is. (laughs) Have you broken up with clients? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I would assume you'd have to at times, right? I mean, I found, I remember my therapist setting boundaries once and I was like, oh, so, because I could see it. I was like, oh, that's such a, that's such a boss move. Like I remember thinking that like, cause yep. she was like, she was my favorite. She passed away actually. She was amazing. Mm-hmm. But I remember, um, and it was, it made sense. It was like when my job was crazy and I was always like running around and, and our jobs had no boundaries. I worked in the entertainment industry, so they had sure, no boundaries. Right. So, you know, yes, I could, I could always set standing meetings, but it didn't always work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember her just being like, yeah, you can't cancel like this close ahead. I'll give you one. Like, you know, and but she said it with like such it's that same thing. She would look at me right in the eyes. And I remember being like, got it, hear you. And it really helped. And it helped me a commit to it more, but also be 
I had to be very proactive. Like I would look ahead if I knew that would never happen because of the meet, the types of meetings that were around it. And I know those people yeah. and I would never, like I would, I would actually cancel it versus before I would never be that proactive. So I was way more respectful of her time. I was going to say, didn't it make you have feelings of respect? For sure. I respected her instantly and I felt bad that what I was doing was coming off as a sign of disrespect, which I didn't realize while I was in it. I was just in my mode of like, well, it's just fact. Like I can do it or I can't do it. Not realizing how much of that was coming off as disrespect because that was not my intention. But here's the thing, Tom. I don't, I don't know that it comes off as disrespect. What your therapist did is she just told you what her limit was. She just yep. said, this will, this is a deal breaker for our relationship if it continues happening. Yep. And I, I, have broken up with plenty of a very high profile client because you know that I you know went from being a talent agent to a therapist and then of course who were my clients just all the same freaking people I was working with but now they're just <laughs> therapy clients instead of supermodel clients you know right and I would say I mean I would say listen I'm not you know 911 like I'm literally not here if you don't do the work if you keep canceling our regular appointments and then only call me when it's an emergency that's literally not therapy. And I'm not down to do it. They're like, even if I'm willing to pay you $800 billion, I'm like, yeah, even if you're willing to pay me that, because I'm not willing to be doing pretend therapy with you because I'm actually a therapist. So <laughs> if you want to do the work, keep our appointments. I'm, I'm into it. And listen, obviously if someone like books a movie and they have to go on set, oh, I'm not talking about that, right? We're right, talking right. about I yeah, had yeah. some flexibility. It's so funny because this woman was um, really great. I remember I had I had a pretty profound experience at a meditation retreat where I actually called upon, she had already passed. I called upon her, which was so interesting because I hadn't even been to her for a long time. But I was trying, like, you know, it was a silent retreat. So like I was in my head about something. And I remember finally being like, Brenda, are you up there? And I just started talking to her and I was like, mm -hmm. I know you would call me on that. Like it was something she said. And I promise you in two seconds, all the answers came. It was like insane. And I just started laughing and I giggled and I looked up and I was like, thank you. <laughs> but that's amazing. A more funny, funny kind of story. I had not been seeing her for a while. My friend was started seeing her and which was great for her. I'm actually so sad Brenda Dyke. She was great for her. And mm. what one of the things she would do sometimes is she would get you to a point and basically make you be the one to answer it. Be like, well, why do you think you did whatever, you know? And she would sit, yeah. she could sit there for a full 30 minutes and not say a word. And it would make you so uncomfortable. But she'd be like, I don't care. She was like this awesome black woman with like attitude up. And she's like, you know it. I can sit here all day, figure it out. Cause she she would know that was your issue of just being comfortable saying something. And, oh God, so she's with my friend and they're in the session and it gets to this major question. I wish I remembered what it was, but something that would crack everything open, right? And it was that standoff, that famous Brenda standoff. And it's like, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know. And like back and forth, cut to ding, well, time's up. I guess we'll have to crack this next week. And then she passed away. Oh. oh my God. It's that's the story that always hangs with me. Cause I'm like, it's literally like she was holding like the key of everything. <laughs> uh, I giggle. Cause I know she's laughing too. Cause she probably is like, she still knows. Like that's probably what she's saying. Up there. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but it's, um, it's, it's fascinating. Anyway, you had an amazing therapist. I do want to talk about before we run out of time, I, I found really beautiful because one of the things that 
I find people have trouble with, especially with boundaries, it's twofold. It's not just setting them. It's hearing other people's boundaries without taking them personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and you told a story that was not quite about that. It was more about, it, it was slightly different, but I feel like we can get to it with the same angle. The story about your dad at the end, how you um, ultimately weren't even going to invite him to your graduation because of the fear of what his response would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want you to talk about that because I think it's a, a beautiful lesson about creating boundaries in a certain way of it not being about the response, but also then flipping it around on the other side of being the person of not taking boundaries personally, because I think that's an interesting part too. So I hand it back to you. (laughs) Uh, The story is that my dad was a very, uh, just to set it up, you know, very unavailable emotionally type of a person. He was very dutiful, but he had four daughters, probably should have had sons. So, (laughs) you know, he, he ended up, and I was like the last the the last daughter. So I also felt like I was his last shot for a boy, but then I wasn't anyway. So throughout my life, my parents got divorced. I'd say before my parents got divorced, I probably exchanged less than a hundred words with my father. And I was about 13 at that point, like actually no exaggeration. We were all afraid of him. My mother was afraid of him. He was very handsome, golfing, martini drinking, think mad men. Yeah. Like one of those was, guys right, when you were describing it, it's exactly how he was. So I was graduating grad school. And I just flippantly say to my therapist, yeah, I might have been at, not even going to invite my father because he had retired early, moved to Florida, hated New York, had come in for many years because he was, you know, management guy. Um, and I knew it. He it was so stressful. I knew he, he would say no was my fear. And so she's like, well, wait a minute, though. But do you do you want to ask him? And I was like, well, I mean, if he's going to say no, what's the point? And she was like, well, him coming isn't the only point. I was like, well, what do you mean? And she was like, if you want to ask him, she's like, do you want him to be there? I said, I mean, I do. <laughs> and she was like, okay, so then why don't you ask him and let him decide? And I was like, cause I think he's going to say no. She's like, Tara, listen, your healing is in the asking because then you show your father what your true heart's desire is, that he matters, that you would like him to be there. And you're also a grown-up. And if he can't, you can also accept it. So you don't just ask because you don't not ask because your fear is they're going to say no. So that was super profound unto itself of getting that the asking is about letting people know who I am as much as trying to get what I want, right? I thought it was only trying to get what I want. Right. And if I didn't think I was going to get what I want, then don't do the asking because why make yourself vulnerable? Well, make yourself vulnerable because that's how other people will know you. So she gives me a, a homework assignment and she's like, okay, well, you're going on your annual trip to go see him in Florida. You, you got to ask him to come. I was like, oh my God. So the whole time we're there, I don't ask him. And I'm now I'm packing and I was like, Like, I have to ask him. I cannot come back and tell Ruth I didn't do it. Like, I have to ask him. And it's just he and I in the car. He's driving. And I'm I'm literally sweating. I was like, you have to do it now, Terry. You're going to be in the airport in 15 minutes. Like, you have to do it. So I was like, hey, Dad. He was like, yeah, Terry. I was like, I have to ask you something. And he's like, everything okay? I was like, well, yeah. You know, I got an extra ticket to graduation. It's on this date in May. You know, and Mom and Kath are going to come. And if, you know you know, if, if you can do it, but if you can't, whatever. And he was like, I really can't. And I was like, all right, it's no big deal. It's not, it's not a problem. And then he said, oh, here comes the guilt 
which I thought was like the weirdest freaking thing in the world for him to say. I was like, dude, I haven't guilted you a second in my life. What are you talking about? And I said, no, dad, actually not guilt. I said, I totally understand. It's too much. I said, but, and mom will be there and Kath will be there and everyone else, but nobody can replace you, dad. You're my only father and stay, being connected to you matters to me. Mm. And he was like, you know, I mean, he didn't know he was the worst. He was so socially awkward. It was a nightmare. But <laughs> when, when we were, I was getting out. So I said more to him than I probably ever would have said in my entire life. That was the truth. That was meaningful. When we said goodbye, he hugged me a little bit tighter and longer than he normally would have. And he died suddenly soon. Like, so within six months after that experience, I never saw him again. But in those six months, our relationship changed. And he started like sending me little cards with his little dad scrawl that literally said nothing else but love dad. And it was barely legible. His handwriting was so bad. And it would be like a cute something or thought of you. And then he would put something like a mutual, you know, I was named after a, anyway, I was, he, I was named after a comic strip. He named me and he put the comic strip in just like an envelope. Thought of you, dad. Like, so cute, so emotional, 101, but so cute. And I know that that conversation where I asked him to do something that he couldn't do opened up this depth of intimacy and caring. And what a gift for me before he passed away suddenly when he was only 61. And it's so interesting because it also feels like it was because of his response, which was clearly a self-defense mechanism of just like, he's feeling guilty, but how you handled it, because you could have responded differently. You could, I mean, that could have imploded. I mean, I think about so many other people in that situation and it could have imploded because you could have been hurt that he was saying no. And then it would have been like, now you're accusing me of making you feel guilty. That could have gone another way. But mm -hmm. the fact that you took it as a moment of just using it for intimacy, oh my God, that's a lesson for all of us. I mean, that's so huge. But it like happened spontaneously, though, I believe because of the work I'd been doing with my therapist, where she made me get in touch with my truth, which is that it wasn't my ego that needed to be hurt because he was incapable. Like he had a limitation around coming to the city. It was my heart that wanted to be known. And I wanted him to know that he was important. And even though he didn't do a perfect job, he was a dutiful good person and a good parent to the best of his ability. But I learned so much from him about being successful and about hardworking and all of these amazing things. And it's like the important thing is that the healing is in the asking. And really what, what we learn from the healing being in the asking is that our real healing is in being known. And the only way that the people we love can know us is if we tell the truth and we risk being vulnerable. I feel like there's very, obviously there's some people that just master that, but I feel like for most people, that is the journey. It is because we're, if we let people know who we really are and then they quote unquote reject us, we feel like we won't survive it. But if we don't let them know who we really are, our intimacy is blocked, like the level of actually knowing people. And the thing is, we're not that fragile. We're really not that fragile. Like I wasn't even, I was actually relieved in the end 
that my father didn't go with my parents divorced and my mother's freaking boyfriend. Like I was relieved. Right. But asking still provided this beautiful connection for he and I, you know? Yeah. And it's also, like you said, just saying how you feel like it's the same thing in a smaller way with like in relationships when you can actually just say what's pissing you off versus like holding it in this whole resentment thing that happens. It's that truth will just totally deepens everything. Cause what did you, you put it in there, which I thought was really funny. The idea that we've all been there of like, you just keep holding it in. Was it the Esther girl? Like she holds it in and she just responds with like the eye rolls. And like, so she ends up doing all this like passive aggressive behavior versus just actually explaining it. And when she started actually explaining it, their whole relationship started shifting. Exactly. And the thing with not saying it is that it doesn't, you know, feelings don't disappear because they're inconvenient or because we don't like them or because we don't know how to express them. They just go underground. And then they drive our behavior. We have displaced aggression and all this other crap that goes on. And we're like, why am I acting this way? Why am I feeling this way? Oh, because I'm denying. I'm afraid to look at how I really feel. So I'm just going to shove it on down. But, you know, Freud actually made this. It's, I don't know how to say it exactly how he said it, but I'm going to paraphrase that human beings are like potbelly stoves and our feelings are like the smoke. So imagine that denying your feelings and not saying anything is like thinking you could take paper, stuff it down the flue, and that will make the smoke disappear. <laughs> Does that happen? <laughs> no. No. The smoke comes out all sideways. Yeah. So you don't even know what the hell is going on with feelings when we do it. It's so confusing. We're displacing it onto other people who it's not about. We're like having a transference, all these things that go on because that energy doesn't just disappear. So naming our feelings, owning our feelings, and normalizing our feelings, right? It's normal to feel angry, upset, even petty. Listen, this is the dark and the light, right? That's part of the shadow of all of us. Like nobody doesn't have a shadow part of themselves that they wish was different. Like, but if we just accept, then we can integrate it, you know, and then at least you're talking true from a clear perspective, you know? Yeah, for sure. Talk about then on the flip side of not taking other people's boundaries personally. Well, you know, being a boundary boss means that you can say no and you can accept no, as you had quoted before. So you got to look at why you do take it personally. You, you, you literally have to go. Everyone has a right to be self-determined the same way I have a right to be self-determined. If we're over-functioning and over-giving in our relationships, though, and we're giving from a place of fear, because that's what that is, right? We can either give from a place of equanimity and love, or we're giving from a place of fear and need. So when we want to make ourselves kind of the center of other people's lives, or I've got all the answers, that is not clean. There's no way. It's not. There's something else going on there. So then when one of those people, because I've been in this play is, you know, listen, you, we're all a work in progress. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I've been in that scenario many times where I'm like, I cannot believe Betty after everything I've done for her. You're like, oh, so you did all those things for Betty so you could bean count later when she doesn't do exactly what you want her to do. That's not cool. Like give because you want to give. Really don't do it with an expectation of what will come back. So mm -hmm. anyway. If someone says no, think about why is it painful? 
why does it feel like they're rejecting us? Because we personalize everything, especially when we're codependent. It's all personal. Someone's political views are personal. Someone not liking the the waitress at, at the place that we suggested them being like the service is bad. Well, I think you're being a little demanding. Why? Why? Are you the, related to the waitress? Like, what is your problem? Oh like, why? I get into this with my partner all the time. I'm like, <laughs> well, guess who enjoyed their meal more? Me. <laughs> because I actually asked for what I wanted. <laughs> I say that all the time. Because he'll be like, oh, she's never. that's his favorite joke. She's never been to a restaurant. Like, if God forbid I ask a question or like, I see if there's a different way to do Like, if I ask huh? for anything, that's not simply like menu Number one, thank you. If it's not simple, then he like rolls his eyes and makes fun of me. But I always joke because then sure enough, he'll get his thing. He'll be like, oh, I'm like, oh, would you maybe possibly prefer that a different way that you could have expressed? <laughs> Look so who's, true. yeah, it's so funny. And he always got, now he laughs because he knows it's so true. <laughs> but you're right. It is interesting. You're right. And especially if you're a codependent, because then it, it we always, we always put things through our own lens. So it always becomes, well, I would never do that. I would, because if you're the person who just gives, 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 then everyone else is going to constantly disappoint you. Yes, they are. And you, everyone is not like us. And I think that th that's a young assumption for sure that, you know, we learn, I learned that there are very lots and lots of untrustworthy people in the world, but I didn't know that because I came from a very not a very trustworthy place where I just thought, well, who would do that? Well, a zillion people, Terry, that's I'm, who would do that. I know. And you learn the painful way, but it's also learning that people are different than us. And instead of making the assumption that they're the same, being curious about how they're different, what is your preference? Like when, I, when my husband and I were getting to know each other, I would, I remember saying to him, Hey, he's, he's like an easygoing Pisces, you know? And I would say to him, Hey, if there's anything that I'm doing, that's kind of bugging you or getting on your nerves, like everything seems to always be fine with you, but tell me. And he would, in the beginning, he would be like, you're always wanting there to be a problem. You always think there's a problem. There's no problem. I'm like, no, babe, I don't want there to be a problem. I just want you to specifically have what you want. And if there's something I'm doing that's bothering you that I could easily change, I'd like to change it. Keep in mind, he was a widower. He had three acting out teenage sons when we met, you know, like it was a lot. So he right. was like, just don't leave. Like, whatever. It's no problem. Just, just, I don't want to know how bad it's going to be, but just don't leave. You know? So I remember he finally said something. He finally was like, you know, after you take a shower and wash your hair, you have all that hair. Oh, you take it out of the drain. <laughs> My husband calls it like, he's like, what happened to this wall? Because like, I'll take it and put it on the wall so that I remember like to take it. So it looks like <laughs> an animal exploded in the shower. And he's always like, and usually it's because I'm very good. I then go and clean it up and yes. it's like ready for me. But you know, every once in a while you're rushing or something happens and he's like, what? The animal got murdered in the bathroom. And yeah, <laughs> that is a female thing. It is crazy. <laughs> That's so funny. But just that, ju just him, him assuming that me asking him if there's anything that I'd, he'd like me to do differently is a problem. Like we, right. we had to work on that of like, that isn't a problem. problem. That's you being specific. Cause I'm so specific. Like I am specific about what I want about being specifically understood. It's not okay. If he just vaguely gets what I'm talking about, I'm like, babe, but do you know what I mean? Like, do you know, do you really know what I'm saying? He's like, I do. Okay. I'm like, okay, well then nod, acknowledge something like, no, 
have we been together 20, 20 something years? And like, I'm so boring that you're, he's like, no, Tara, I just can't freaking hear. So <laughs> he's like, speak up. I'm not ignoring you, but I need to be succinctly known. And I think that those are boundaries too. Not everyone does, but your preferences mm. are your boundaries. So anyway, I don't want people to go away from this beautiful conversation we've had, thinking boundaries are all about keeping people out. They're not. Boundaries are also about the way we invite people in. I feel like that's actually been very prevalent from this conversation, oh, which good. I think, what I think is so interesting. I feel like it's all been about deepening the intimacy through how you express yourself. And yes, and if anything, I actually feel like we didn't talk as much about those traditional type of boundaries of like keeping people out, though they exist and you go through them beautifully in your book. It, I, I think because what, what I found so fascinating about the book too was, wow, your boundaries really are just a reflection of all the inner work you have to do. Yes. It really is just a reflection of all the patterns and everything you've inherited or have been put on you or you've created from some sort of situation in your life that are now manifesting and how you interrelate with other people. So you need to figure out what, and again, a boundary is just a boundary, good or bad is however you want to put on it. It's like you create what those boundaries are by that patterning. So that's what I think is so brilliant about the book is you do such an unraveling of your own patterning, which is a gift. I mean, to be able to do that. And I do, and, and I think it's really clear that by doing that, you're finding more of your own truth because like what you just said, it's about your own preferences, which mm -hmm. I love because that means you have to know your preferences. Exactly. And we have a whole entire massive exercise in the beginning of the book called the okay and not okay list, where we literally dive into the nuances of every part of your life. Like what is really working for you and what is kind of bugging you or what is really bugging you. But even the small things matter because there are small changes that you can make to have um, a more fulfilling life experience that are not even a big deal. And if you go, you know, I thought about that when I was doing my list and the lighting in my office is really harsh and I hate it. <laughs> I'm going to change it or I'm going to do something like those types of things where we're actually caring about our own needs yeah. and our own preferences down to the lighting in the rooms. It's so funny because I have that conversation. My partner is definitely one who has to work on all this stuff, as we all do. But mm -hmm. he's way more of he'll dismiss his own stuff just because it's like he's, you know, versus and he makes fun of me for it. I would be, let's say, the lighting in the office person. And he might be like, oh, my God, who cares? I'm like, it's going to make me so happy. <laughs> like this one little change is going to make me happy. So why wouldn't I do it? Um, you know, and the same thing. It's like me asking for to see if they can put this on my salad. If yes. they can do it, I'm going to enjoy the salad infinitely more. And I know that. So why wouldn't I ask for it? Back to the restaurant conversation. Same. Uh, yes, exactly. Now, if they can't do it, then I can decide if I so choose to have the salad this way or if I want to order something else. Um, I'm with you. I'm like, that's the only way we learn our own preferences and who we are and what we are. And that's when you can start being responsible for your own happiness versus somehow expecting the magic salad to automatically be put in front of your face every single time. And you're always happy every time it gets put down. It's like, that's just exactly. expecting a lot from the outside world. Mm -hmm. You're amazing. And I love this conversation. And what a, what a, all I could say, your therapy, your, your clients are very lucky because you have just such a really great way about you. Very direct, but um, from Thanks. a loving, loving place. Yeah, no. And I just recommend everybody getting this book because it's 
it's helpful. And easy, like I said, you really made it easy. You made it super easy. Thank you so much, Tal. I, I, it really is the most important work of my life. And it is my, my wish, my goal, my dream is that it just reach as many people as possible to help them lessen their suffering and increase their joy and satisfaction in their relationships and their lives. I mean, that's literally my whole trip. And I did a whole thing on energetic boundaries, how to protect your energetic boundaries. Because I think your crew is probably a lot like mine, where we have a lot of empaths and highly sensitive folks. And I know you're like that. I could tell. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> do, I, do I wear some stuff on my sleeve? <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, it's just, I think that they're going to love it. And it's, it's a lesson and it's a beautiful downloadable guide so that you can just start to Look at your own life. We do an inventory in there of like, hey, what relationships drain the hell out of me? What relationships really mm. fuel me? And again, doesn't mean you have to change anything. It's just a way of being aware of like, huh, okay, I'm seeing this. Maybe I will spend more time with this person or perhaps a little less with this person, or I'll draw a different boundary with the person who's draining me. So knowledge is power. So that is what this gift will give you guys is self-knowledge. I love that. I mean, that's all we can strive for. That's what we try and do every day, at least through the den we do. Oh, yeah. thank you for that. This is amazing. You're great. Thank you so much. Same. We'll have to get really you on again. It. Yeah, because I feel like I had someone, I didn't even look at my questions. So I know that I have a ton more for you. So, <laughs> so funny. We didn't do anything that was slated, which is my favorite. Literally, though, these are my favorite conversations because they're valuable and real. And if they resonate with you and me, hopefully they will resonate with the rest of the folks at the den. I think so. I feel like people will really resonate with you for sure. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We will talk soon. Have a beautiful day. We will. You too. Den Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks podcast and join us there.